News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. As we're coming to the end of 2020, I think we're going to run out of adjectives and ways to describe this year. We just know it was... Well, unusual. Let's just put it that way, right? In all industries, it seems like everybody had to find a way to cope with the challenges of the year. Now, looking ahead to 2021, though, what can we forecast or what are we expecting, especially in the area of real estate? Well, the federal government has indicated they're looking at things like a national foreign home buyers tax. And a recent report from Royal LePage is predicting that standalone home prices are also going to jump. Yeah, again. So let's talk about all of this with the help of local developer and president of the Panach Group, Kush Panach, uh, for some of his insights on that. Kush, thanks for being back with us. Uh, thank you for having me, Sydney. So when you hear some of those forecasts, and they seem pretty rosy, is that kind of your assessment of how you see 2021? I do, based on what we've seen in 20, in, during the current year. There really, it really has been an unexpected market. As, as your introduction mentioned, it, it has been a very unusual year in every respect. Okay, so what markets do you think might have some, some good things to look forward to in 2021? I really do think, that, again, anything that's in that, what I would say, the affordable range. By that, I mean mostly wood frame condominium apartments. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of strength. I mean, the, the single family in the Fraser Valley or in the, the, I would say, in the more affordable areas, you're seeing, I would say you've seen a lot of strength this year. Uh, we've been involved with one project in Port Moody where, you know, we were unfortunately due to launch phase two of our project on at the end of March, a week before, a week oh, essentially no. after COVID hit. Really? So what and, happened? Uh, well, we took a bold step because not knowing what was coming down the pike, we like many people assume that this uh, thing was going to pass in a few weeks or a month or two, none of us thinking that we'd be talking about COVID uh, nine months later, we made the decision to go ahead and launch. And it was a, it's a big project with 220 homes. And the surprising, and I would say this is what surprised me, is the unexpected strength in the marketplace. And uh, so far, as of yesterday, we've sold 75% of those homes. Right. So just did it require developers, do you think, Kush, then to just rethink what they were doing? You can't just put something up and sell it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we shut down our sales center and everything moved to basically we had a virtual system set up for everything from viewing to videos to uh, of online chats uh, to base- only seeing people by appointment. But one thing it did uh, do with the uh, unusual, uh, I guess, maybe an outcome of what was going on. We found that people walking in the door were much better informed than ever because they maybe had the time to sit and do their research. But if they were willing to make an appointment, come in the door. Uh, we're surprised the number of people who actually end up buying uh, compared to a normal sales center where you you might have a number of people streaming through and only have a few serious ones. We're finding more of the people walking in the door are very serious and really have a, I would say, almost a new level of appreciation for certain amenities and certain uh, things that you're building into a project. Right. So that's what I was wondering, too. So has it changed what developers also offer? I saw the marketing for a building in my neighborhood uh, has changed in the in this past year. So a year ago when the signs were up, it was saying one thing and now it's saying something different because it, it sounds to me like they're definitely marketing more to people who live in the neighborhood. That's one of the things we've really noticed. Everything has become a little bit more hyper-local in the sense that there's a new sense of appreciation for amenities, 
for what you have around you. Uh, we happen to be in Port Moody, and I can tell you people are talking a lot more about the lakes. Uh, they're talking more about the hiking trails and those kind of things, and even design elements that some of the people used to take for granted, uh, you know, such as, you know, the size of the windows that allow more light, or if you have wider hallways or higher ceilings, it just seems that having to be stuck at home for hours on end has sort of accentuated people's uh, sort of uh, appreciation for some of those things. That's one thing we've definitely noticed in terms of the buyers. Yeah, and, and what about what they're, what they're looking for? What about downsizing, right? Because I think that's that's a big thing in the neighborhood that I live in is that people if you want to sell your single family home, there's really nowhere for you to go. Is that changing too, do you think? Uh, that we we were very fortunate that we sort of planned for that planned for that almost two years ago, three years ago when we were designing the project. A good portion of our, the buyers in our project are, are downsizers, and that's one of the things that they really do appreciate is if you designed and built larger homes. They don't want to go live in a 600 or 700 yeah. square foot box. So that's changing then too. Very much so. I think you're definitely seeing that. But going back to your earlier comment as far as what changes we're going to see, unfortunately the nature of our business is such that we plan and you design projects years ahead of time. So unfortunately, some of the impacts as far as physical design will probably take one or two, one, two, three years before they're baked into the new projects. You know, some people have been able to go back and modify some of their existing projects, but there's only so much you can do once your permits are issued. Right. So you're saying whatever changes this year may have really brought with the industry, we might not see for another year or two. That's correct. I think the, the implementation of some of those things might take a little bit of time. But in some cases, uh, some of the things that we were already doing just became more noticed. Um, you know, people never used to really pay much attention to co-working spaces or the level True. of amenities you had at a project. But we're finding people are asking a lot more questions about amenities than they ever have. How much, uh, I, how much are people asking about, is there a home office in this now? <laughs> Very, that's one of the big questions. And we were very fortunate. Somehow we planned a co-working space into our amenity building three years ago. Right. Wow. Okay. Then you did. You were very lucky to do that then. So interesting. So you're, is the real estate industry then overall, Kush, do you think looking forward to 2021? I definitely, I definitely am, and I think in general people are because there has been very, very unexpected strength in the marketplace. There are a lot more people out there looking and buying. So I think... Uh, you know, the, the combination of, I think, uh, lower interest rates and just a number of factors came together to really create this very strong market. I don't see anything on the horizon that's really changing it. I would say, if anything, it's getting more positive as uh, time goes on. All right, Kush, thank you so much for your time today. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me on. All right, and good luck in 2021. That is Kush Panach. He's with the uh, Panach Group. He's the president. He's a local developer there, talking about the changes that the industry, the real estate industry, has gone through this year and what they expect to see happening uh, in 2021. I'd have to say the resilience of the industry has been something that surprised certainly me as just an observer and a watcher. I think it surprised a lot of other people, too, that the numbers have been pretty good in terms of sales and resales for homes. Some, obviously, neighborhoods better than others. And it sounds like predictions for 2021 say that it's going to continue that strength as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So rain for us in the forecast today, as you've been hearing, and we'll continue to update you. But you know what? Seven degrees, which is kind of what we're playing with today. 
as nothing compared to what they are seeing in pretty much the rest of the country today. There's that big storm that is moving up the East Coast, the one you've been seeing in the news wreaking all that havoc in New York City and other places uh, moving up. It's like minus 12 in places like Montreal today and minus 10 in Toronto. It's, it's going to be cold and snowy out there. So I guess we should consider ourselves lucky, right, Nikki Reitmeyer? Yeah, and it's kind of been a crazy year for weather all around. I mean, every time you check the news throughout the year, it would be doing something wild in one part of the country or something crazy in some other part of the country. It seems like 2020 has been a a weird year in general, but the weather also very strange this year. It has been. And there's been some huge, we may have overlooked this because of everything else we we were thinking about, but there have been some huge weather related stories. Yes, there absolutely has. And Environment Canada actually released their list of top 10 weather stories from the past year. And there's everything on this list. I mean, they have the big tornado that happened. Of course, that ended up killing two people, which was extremely tragic. It was the most powerful twister of the year. It was the deadliest in 11 years, and it generated winds of up to 260 kilometers an hour. Then there was a very frigid, frigid spring, uh, especially on the prairies in particular with Alberta recording these temperatures of minus 22 at the end of March. And we've experienced a very crazy fall as well. We had winter through parts of the West. You know, BC has been relatively lucky, or at least where we are in Metro Vancouver has been relatively lucky, but Alberta, Saskatchewan getting big dumps of snow, lots of wind as well. For 50 hours in Saskatoon, it snowed and snowed and snowed. Ontario, at the same time, was enjoying this really warm weather where temperatures hit 26 degrees. Just absolutely kind of bizarre mixes. But if we look at what was in the top five of this list, do you want to count them down with me? Yeah, let's do it. Let's Let's start with number five then. So number five on Environment Canada's list of the top 10 weather stories from this past year was the snowmageddon that hit St. John's, Newfoundland. So this was earlier in the year, but it was a big uh, bomb cyclone, as they call them, that happened in January. And it was brutal there for about 18 straight hours. Nearly a meter of snow fell, and it ended up burying cars basically right up to their hood ornaments. You know what? I knew about this because I I had talked to my sister-in-law when this happened and she ah. sent us some pictures. So, I'm, but I just, what I couldn't believe was that was this year. You know, like when right. thinking back, I was like, did we, was that this year that that happened? Cause I very vividly remember having this discussion with her. Yeah, and it was funny, I was you know, doing a lot of year-in-review programming and going back through all this stuff that happened throughout the year and looking back on some of these stories and some of the weather-related stories, and I was going, oh yeah, it was this spring where Alberta hit temperatures that made it colder there than it was in Siberia, which seems, remember that story when that was big in the news? Yes. So, number four on this list from Environment Canada was the really, really hot summer that they had back east. So on May 27th, Montreal saw temperatures of 36.6 degrees Celsius, an all-time May record. In June, Quebec broke record temperatures as well. Ottawa's average temperature for the hot spell was its highest in 145 years. And even Fredericton had the most days above 30 degrees Celsius in 50 years. 
out in Summerside, PEI, they had 10 very similar days, really, really, really hot days um, where they just hadn't seen such such a span of heat before. So it was that heat wave that made number four on the Environment Canada list of top 10 weather occurrences. Well, you know, we didn't have any of this this year. We didn't have like an extended huge hot summer. We didn't have a snowstorm. I just, we had like, did, did we have any weather problems out here? Like, okay, it rained a little bit too much, but that's normal. Yes. Yeah, see, it's funny that you say that because I feel like all these other crazy weather events were happening through the rest of the country. BC did make the list. We came in at number two. So number three was the really big flood in Fort McMurray, which caused uh, a lot of damage. 13,000 residents had to be evacuated, but BC came in at number four. And you may be thinking, well, why? Because we didn't have any crazy snowstorms. Yeah. We didn't seem to have any of that those crazy yeah. occurrences. We had the smoky skies. Right. Remember in September, the wildfire smoke came up from not wildfires necessarily that were happening here in the province, but they had those really big wildfires that were happening south of the border and it just shrouded parts of BC in this wildfire smoke where people couldn't go outside and it was recommended it's they, terrible. they not exercise exactly. It covered the skies over Victoria for 180 86 consecutive hours and temperatures even fell eight degrees with the sun blocked out. I do remember that, of course. Like, I just wasn't thinking of it in terms of a weather-related event, but it was weather south of us that made that happen. But that was terrible, and I couldn't go outside. It was awful. Yeah, it was. It was really, really... I mean, you know, we do get wildfire smoke here, but it seemed like this year in particular, it was quite bad, and especially with people feeling so isolated anyways because of COVID-19, I think it really hit a lot harder for so many of us who, you know, now you can't go outside and you can't enjoy yeah. what little bit of outdoor time we actually had. Okay, so if do you want to hear, yeah, yeah number one, number two, what's number one? Okay, number one is a wild story. So this was the big hailstorm in June that hit Calgary, and it caused over a billion dollars worth of property damage. So again, this happened in the summertime, in the early summer, in June. This thunderstorm, it hits southern Alberta with 70 kilometer, kilometer an hour winds. It pours rain. It causes hail that damages cars. It causes flooding. Semis are getting stuck in pools of water. Some cars are basically submerged in this flash flooding. Golf ball-sized hail oh fell from the sky. Now, remarkably, nobody was seriously hurt, but the property damage was extensive. They're estimating the damage was $1.2 billion, which makes it the fourth costliest disaster in Canadian history. Wow. Okay, I do remember that. Okay, well, I guess we should be thankful for where we ended up on that list then. Uh, Nikki, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, this is the time of year when we normally take a look back at the big stories that shaped, you know, the year past. And one of the big ones this year, besides COVID-19, was the battle over land rights between Wet'suwet'en members and the federal government. That dominated headlines for weeks. So where are we now with that situation? Global News journalist Sarah McDonald takes a closer look. Before the global pandemic and the collective continental reckoning on racial injustice... Canada was forced to face its own legacy of colonialism, colliding head-on with Indigenous rights and title in a highly polarizing natural gas pipeline project. You can't speak about reconciliation while ignoring the traditional governments of these lands. It's likely you hadn't heard of Wet'suwet'en Nation before the year 2020, when just a few weeks in, it became a household name. I'm an Uncle 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 Uncle. Ah! 
and igniting sweeping, sometimes violent roadblocks and protests across the country. Countless Canadians, some far disconnected from the cause, showing up in support of Indigenous rights. Canada has just keeps repeating the history of not properly negotiating with Indigenous people. But it's not that simple. At the crux of it, the Wet'suwet'en conflict pits the Canadian legal system against traditional Indigenous law, which dates back millennia. We are the authority on our land. Our people have a right to protect this land. The nation's hereditary chiefs, like Namox, maintaining this sweeping swath of land is still under their jurisdiction, as the Canadian courts and the nation's elected chiefs and councils side with the energy giant, looking to build a multi-billion dollar, highly profitable pipeline right through it. I have a truck payment, I got a house payment, I, I have to work. That puts the many Wet'suwet'en, employed by Coastal GasLink, in a difficult position. Many support the project. I think it's really, really important to, to have a good relationship with community members. In a region heavily reliant on the resource sector. People just want to work. Our community wants to work. And I think the benefits are going to be really important to our people. So when a months-long standoff at a crucial construction checkpoint barricaded by Wet'suwet'en supporters hit a boiling point, the stakes only got higher with the enforcement of a high-profile injunction. Activists and elders led away in handcuffs. All of the permits are in place for this project to proceed. It will be proceeding. But with one blockade cleared, others persisted. Federal and provincial ministers arriving to do damage control for unprecedented exhaustive talks with only one faction of Wet'suwet'en leadership that lasted for days and ultimately ended with a draft deal calling for a continuation of negotiations in the landmark Supreme Court ruling known as Delgamuk Gesteaway. That Aboriginal title is alive and well and living in the territories of First Nations in this province of British Columbia. But nearly a year later, Wet'suwet'en Nation remains fractured. That draft deal ultimately ratified, though not with the input and involvement that many members had sought. Now it's time for Wet'suwet'en people to handle this issue by themselves. A nation still divided, likely to stay that way for years to come. Sarah McDonald's Global News. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the B.C. government has announced an ambitious five-year emissions target, but the details are scarce on how we're all supposed to hit this target. So we thought, let's get some more information on this. Marin Smith is the co-chair of B.C.'s Climate Solutions Council and the executive director of Clean Energy Canada, and she's joining us this morning to talk about it. Good morning, Marin. Good morning, now, what is this target? What is this new target for BC? Yeah, so, you know, we have been working on climate action here in BC for a while, and we've been pretty good reducing our pollution over the years. But our economy's been growing, the population's been growing, so we still have a long way to go. So the government um, introduced uh, a really great idea, a 2025 target. So it's five years out. We have to reduce our emissions by 16% by then uh, on our way to a 40% reduction by 2030. Now, what I really like about this is oftentimes we're setting these targets that are, you know, 10 years away, 12 years away, 15 years away. And, you know, like any of us, like if we're on a diet, let's say, and it's like, oh, you know, if you were going to weigh in two months from now, 
you might not get around to actually really losing weight or you might sort of start and then lose your track um, because it's so long out that you're going to get checked. So now the government is every year going to do what they did yesterday, come out with an accountability report, and we've now got a shorter-term target. So, uh, you know, now we're going to be able to track and watch what we're doing, and I think it's going to create more incentives uh, and people are going to understand more how we're doing. Okay, so how are we actually going to hit these targets, though? Yeah, well, the good news for British Columbia is that we do have a lot of the right policies and plans in place, things like uh, zero-emission vehicle targets that are helping to uh, the mandating car dealerships to sell electric vehicles, for example, and then providing incentives. So electric vehicles help us transition off of fossil fuels, off of oil, onto electricity. Uh, and that's really what the name of the game here is, is we need to do that in a lot of our society. So we have building codes that have been introduced as part of our Clean BC plan. Uh, we've got uh, other policies around our fuels and reducing the um, emissions in our fuels, it's called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard. So all this to say that we we have a plan. It's called the Clean BC plan. We've got some good policies uh, there to reduce emissions in our fuels, in our natural gas, uh, to have it go to have more renewable natural gas in it. And now we just need to strengthen those policies. Um, They do work, um, but we actually just need to turn the dial on them and start going harder on them. Okay, but in what ways do we need to go harder? Like, what are the things that we can do to hit those targets? Yeah, so it's all about um, being more efficient with the energy that we use, so using less energy. uh, And so that's things like building retrofits. That's like shifting off of um, the, the second piece is around shifting off of fossil fuels and moving to clean and renewable electricity. So that's things like uh, electric vehicles I talked about. It's also about electrifying, for instance, our buses. Uh, And there's been a big commitment that we're going to shift to electric buses, electrifying our trucks and fleets. So how do we do that? We do that with a combination of um, investments from government, uh, and we do it with a combination of investments and um, rules that mandate that we have to do it. Carrots and sticks, the good old carrots and sticks. Now, do we think the carrots and the sticks will work enough for this? Because we've we've tried that and we seem to keep missing our targets. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'd say why, uh, you know, it, it's serious now. Um, this, this report is really a wake-up call that we have a lot to do. Um, why I'm optimistic is we've been working at this before, but... Many of the technologies really weren't ready uh, or they were expensive. So we were really pushing against the tide. Now, if you look at some of these uh, technologies, they're, they're ready for prime time, is what I like to say. So things like heat pumps, uh, which are electric ways of heating your home, not the old baseboard heaters, but actually heat pumps. So you can swap out your gas furnace to an electric heat pump. The cost of those have come down enormously over the last couple of years. Um, Same with things like electric vehicles. So we're seeing around the world 
Um, British Columbia is not the only place that's doing this, and we're mm-hmm. seeing huge investments by places like China, Germany, uh, the EU, Korea, Japan. And that's really helped uh, the technology costs come down. So things mm-hmm. are ready for prime time. Um, the second big piece of our emissions is around industry. And we're going to need to uh, start using more of our clean, renewable electricity that we have in British Columbia to power more of our industry. So that's one of the advantages we have here in British Columbia. You know, we have hydro, which is zero emission electricity, huge competitive advantage for us. We need to get clean electricity to power more of our industries. You know, and like I said, you know, things like our bus systems, our trucks, uh, you know, electricity is not there for big long haul trucks yet, but it is, uh, you know, we're seeing Amazon purchasing electric vehicles for this short haul trucking. So it's coming. It's coming. Uh, Marin, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Great. Well, thanks for your interest. That's Marin Smith. That's co-chair of the BC's Climate Solutions Council, executive director at Clean Energy Canada, talking about these new emissions targets that BC has announced. And I know you're skeptical like me where you go, well, how are we supposed to meet these when we've had trouble meeting the ones that we've already set? Uh, She makes a good point about the technology, that now the technology is potentially in a place to start helping making all of this easier. Uh, But as for us... This is Mornings with Simi. With the way COVID-19 cases are going right now in Canada, we are just days away from reaching a grim landmark. At our current rate, we are going to surpass the 500,000 mark for COVID infections in this country, and we're going to do it over this upcoming weekend. Now, we're hearing a lot about the vaccine right now, of course, right? It's finally some good news, but that vaccine rollout is slow. And that doesn't mean we can stop doing all the other things that we've been doing to try to slow down the rate of infection. What is the trajectory in BC and Canada? Well, joining us now is Daniel Coombs, who's a UBC professor in mathematics, and he's done extensive work in modeling disease and illness. Daniel, thanks for being back with us. Hey, good morning. Do you, when you hear the news about the vaccine, do you, do you get a little concerned that perhaps people are going to let their guard down? Yeah, that, that's that's a really serious um, serious issue that you've identified. I, I am I'm really concerned that as the vaccine rolls out over the next few months, you know, into into the uh, especially the elderly population and people who work there, people who work in hospitals, um, that there's going to be um, you know a, a real temptation to to relax uh, what we're doing at the moment, which has been pretty successful over the last month or so, um, and we might actually start to see case counts climbing again. Of course, um, it would be you know the, the, the older people hopefully will be will be protected at that point. The people in the care homes, but uh, it, it, you know <laughs> there's, there's there's still uh, adverse effects for for younger people as well, um, and uh, and I don't want, really want to see a, a big climb of a big climb in those numbers uh, into the new year. Right. Okay. So you said that BC's done fairly well over the last month. What kind of trajectory is BC on? Yeah. So there's a number of people around the province who are making those projections. And um, it's it's generally looking a lot better than it was a month ago. Um, I looked at a few of the projections just now, and um, some people have us going slightly up and some people have us going slightly down. There is a lot of uncertainty, you know, about, exactly what the path will be. Um, but I would say, yeah, it's the, the, um, the last month has seen a, a leveling off. 
and uh, and we're, we're on a relatively good trajectory. What would be great to see would be uh, further, you know, the further declines beyond the little bit of a hint that we've had in the past week or two. Right. How do you compare that to what you're seeing in other provinces? Yeah. So um, it, there, there is good news, I think, that, um, let's see, Alberta and Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, you know, subject to uncertainty because the case counts do fluctuate up and down day to day. They, they, they all seem to be leveling off. Um, Ontario and Quebec, um, unfortunately, still rising at a pretty good rate. Um, Ontario in particular, I think, is concerning. Um, Quebec, I would expect, will start to come under control with some of the um, restrictions that they've put in there um, just recently. Right. So, like, I remember, you know, we were very concerned about the rate at which we were increasing, uh, you know, the number of days it was taking for us to double our cases. So do you think we've gotten that under control? Um, things, are, things are looking good right now, but it's, you know, it's, it's unstable. There's always, there's always the risk of, a, a, you know, a, a large outbreak sort of being discovered. You know, from, from time to time, they, they do report these big outbreaks in different workplaces or in hospitals. And, um, you know, it wouldn't take too much, I think, to derail the progress that's been made across the province. I mean, of course, the, the picture varies according to where exactly you are in the province. Vancouver Island actually has, has sort of, you know, seen quite a good decline and they're back to single digits most days um, over the last week. Right. But again, we talk about those certain areas of the province that are having problems. So let's talk about Fraser Health then. When you look at the rates for Fraser Health, what do you think? Yeah, Fraser Health is not in as is, is not seen the same declines, but, but equally they they haven't been seeing the increases um, that they had been seeing. You know, the, 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 there was a lot of concern about Fraser Health. They they were the the, the first uh, health authority to really see the growth coming in the fall. Um, things you know back in November were were you know I think there was a lot of concern. Um, definitely in a better place now. But like I say, you know, we're only, you know, one larger outbreak, one, one, um, you know, Cargill away from, from seeing from seeing, a, um, you know, a very large increase. Are you concerned about Christmas then? Christmas, New Year's, those, the potential there for people kind of letting their guard down? Yeah, I am concerned about that. I'm concerned about a lot of things. Um, yeah, Christmas and New Year's is definitely going to be a concern. With that said, um, we're still waiting to see the big bump uh, from U.S. Thanksgiving, which was, you know, now now over two weeks. Well, uh, let's see, three weeks ago, um, and the, the U.S. hasn't seen that big push in uh, that, that you might have anticipated from people getting together then. So I, you know, I feel like across the continent, maybe the, uh, the you know, the people are really being much more cautious than they were uh, earlier in the fall. Like maybe enough people are paying attention. Well, that's that's what you got to hope for. There's always some people who can't or won't, um, you know, um, follow all the guidelines, and um, everybody else has to take up just a, a little bit to uh, to make sure that as a community we do well. How would you rate how Canada is doing right now? Then, when you do look at the rate of infection elsewhere, um, you know, we we share a long border with 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 a country which has had a very hard time with this epidemic, and and you know, there are vehicles crossing the border every day. Uh, Thousands of vehicles come across in the peace arch in each direction. You know, there was never a prospect, really, I think, of, of Canada um, eliminating the epidemic as we saw in New Zealand. Um, Taiwan has done very well. Um, but, um, you know, we're certainly not on, not on, we've never been on the same real trajectory, really, as, as our neighbors to the south. Um, 
you know, and then and then when you look further further afield, we've 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 certainly had an easier time with the epidemic than than Britain or France or Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, in, I mean, the the book will be written when the epidemic is over, you know. But right now, I would say uh, Canada's had a a relatively, and I use that advisedly because there's been a you know, massive amount of disruption. Um, and, and a lot of sickness and death this year. What would it take for us to bend it down even further, do you think, here in BC? Um, well, yeah, this, this, is, this is a difficult thing. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we could, we could return to, you know, even more closures as we did back in March. Um, I think it's very encouraging that we've seen the slowdown that we've seen, though, um, from, from what we've had um, over, over the past, um, let's see, it was around November 11th that the, um, that the current level of, of restrictions really came in and there have been adjustments since then. Um, difficult to say right now, um, you know, uh, whether, whether people would respond to, you know, uh, further restrictions, and it's a little bit difficult to, to think exactly what those restrictions really would be right now. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Great, thank you. Daniel Coombs, UBC professor in mathematics there. He's done a lot of work in modeling disease and how that spreads. And in BC, our numbers hold steady, right? We're, I don't know, between five, 700 around there. It seems like day after day. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is he says, you know, it's not pushing down any lower than that. And we still have way too many deaths going on right now, particularly in long-term care homes. And the concern, I think, for a lot of health officials now is that with the news of the vaccine all over the news, does that mean that people are going to let their guard down? We certainly hope not. Wouldn't want to see those numbers climb up, especially with Christmas and New Year's right around the corner. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this year you may not be cooking for 10 people or 15 people. Maybe you're cooking for two or for four. The pressure is still going to be on, though, to make sure everything is perfect for that special dinner. And for a lot of people, that means cooking a turkey. And that a lot of people, that also means that's the thing that gives them the most anxiety, making sure it gets done absolutely perfectly. So we thought, let's get a little advice on that this year. Mary Alice Coffee is with us now. She is a turkey expert with Butterball LLC. Good morning, Mary Alice. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to everybody there. And to you too. Hey, Mary Alice, how does one get the title turkey expert? <laughs> well, you know, we are hired by Butterball uh, to work here, we all have food backgrounds, professional food backgrounds. We're chefs, dietitians. We all work in the food industry. And then we also go through training for a full month before we start the season in uh, November. So all of October, we're going through our training, and we we all know everything about turkey. So we are definitely considered a turkey expert. Okay, I'll bet. So the pressure is on for you too, right? Like you can't cook a dry turkey when you have people over at your house. <laughs> That's for sure. No. And and uh, my children are always expecting turkey for the holidays because uh, it turns out great every time. So um, I will be happy to help anybody who needs help if they want to call 1-800-BUTTERBALL. Uh, my daughter, who is starting to cook turkeys now, uh, we are keeping socially distant here. And um, she'll call me and I give her all the information. So it's uh, very easy to do. It's a wonderful dinner, and um, you know we are experts here. We're happy to help any situation Good. that comes up. How many calls would you say you guys get at this time of year? 
Well, you know, um, um, let's see, we, we get over 100,000 inquiries. So wow. we, besides phone calls, we do get emails, chats. Uh, we have, you know, contacts through our website, Butterball CA. People can reach us. And so um, there's a lot of different ways wow. to reach us. And we've been very, very busy, especially with the, you know, all the different services right. that we have. I'll bet. Okay. So Mary Alice, let's start with this turkey here. What, what do you think some of the mistakes are that we make when it comes to our turkey? Well, the number one mistake is that it's not thawed. Um, if they're going to have a turkey that's, I know you do in Canada have a turkey that you can cook from frozen. Um, but if you have the turkey that you want to thaw first, people do not give it enough time to thaw. So um, what you want to do is put it in the refrigerator. It takes 24 hours to thaw four pounds of turkey. So, if, um, for instance, if you're going to be, um, you know, thawing a turkey that is, um, oh, for instance, 10 to 18 pounds, it's probably going to take about four full days in the refrigerator. Wow. Or if you want, if you don't have enough time or you didn't think about it soon enough, you can uh, also thaw it in cold water, 30 minutes a pound for the turkey by putting it in cold water, changing the water every 30 minutes, and then it will thaw right away for you and you can put it back in the refrigerator until you're ready to go. Do you think most people, they just like take it out and put it in the sink and then just let it thaw like that? Yeah, a lot of people do that. Sure, they just put it in the in the kitchen sink. Um, but, you know, uh, we do recommend changing the water because the, if you leave it in the in cold water and just leave it that way, it's not going to thaw very fast because the temperature of the turkey and the temperature of the water will become equalized. So it won't increase right. the thawing. So change the water every 30 minutes. And if they don't use it, want to use their kitchen sink, um, what I recommend is using a cooler. If you have a cooler, oh, you can put that idea. on the floor of the kitchen and and uh, put the turkey in that. Okay, so but then, we've had we've had people even use bathtubs. <laughs> so <laughs> whatever any, works. Anything you have that will keep the turkey in their water. Mary Alice, this what is the single greatest key to making sure your turkey is perfectly done and juicy? The single most uh, important thing is a good working meat thermometer, uh, because if you have it overcooked, it will be dry and tough, and it's undercooked, it'll be chewy. So I would recommend a good working meat thermometer. You want it to go up to 170 in the breast, 180 in the thigh. And if you have a stuffing inside the turkey, uh, or even a stuffing in a casserole dish, it has to be at 165 to be safe. Okay, good advice. Thank you so much, Mary Alice, and have a good holiday. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we want to help you celebrate the good, so give us a call at 1-800-BUTTERBALL. We will do that. That is Mary Alice Coffee, turkey expert with Butterball. You know what? If you have something go wrong, they are the people to call in an emergency. If you want to send me an email, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Victoria Police have been very busy. A recent joint investigation involving that department unveiled a staggering amount of cash, drugs, and firearms that they managed to seize. So a bunch of different places that they found all this. But the total, about $30 million. What the heck was going on here? So joining us now to tell us more is Victoria Police Chief Delmanic. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Is this like the largest, the large seizure investigation that Victoria Police have ever done? Uh, yes, it is. So in the history of our organization, dating back to 1858, uh, when it comes to uh, fentanyl uh, investigations, to have 
seized and worked with our partner agencies on the Lower Mainland uh, over 12 kilos of high-concentration fentanyl. Uh, that translates to almost 4 million potential lethal overdoses uh, that it could lead to on our streets in British Columbia is, is incredible. So it's certainly the highest that we've seen. Right. How long did this investigation take? What's been going on? Uh, it's been going on for months. Uh, so it started in early June. Uh, our strike force team locally here in Victoria identified an organized crime group that was trafficking fentanyl in uh, Victoria. And so we started on over a month-long investigation, and what we recognized is that this group was highly sophisticated, and some of the supply chains were leading us to the lower mainland. Uh, so, you know, and, and this really speaks to the partnership that we have with uh, all of our agencies across the province. So we reached out to the um, uh, Coordinated Forces Special Enforcement Unit, uh, specifically the Anti-Trafficking Task Force, and uh, partnered up with uh, investigators and officers from the Vancouver Police Department, Surrey RCMP, the Uniform Gang Enforcement Task Team and whatnot. And so we continued to kind of determine who these individuals were. Uh, We're talking individuals here who are at the top of the pyramid of uh, fentanyl trafficking and drug trafficking here in this province. Uh, So it was actually highly sophisticated, highly complex investigation over months. And so how much of a dent do you think this put into that whole supply, that whole chain of sales? Well, Simi, that's hard to tell. I mean, uh, what it does show us is that how uh, these groups are coordinated, uh, the level of violence right. uh, that they're willing to, to partake in our communities, uh, as to how much impact we have, uh, I mean, that just remains to be seen. I mean, I, I, would, I would like to think that this is a significant seizure that is going to make a significant impact. Uh, but it, I know that within the organized crime groups, it does send a, a really strong message that the police organizations across this province are united, and that we are going to do our part in making sure that these deadly poisonous drugs aren't ending up on our streets. Is that one of the most challenging aspects of your job then, is that you do this and you think, wow, for today we can feel pretty good that we did this, but then the scramble is on to catch the person who fills that gap. Yeah, uh, certainly that is a challenge. Uh, I know that our officers uh, are committed to keeping our community safe. As I was mentioning that, you know, there's a level of violence and a risk to public safety that these organized crime groups are bringing right into our local communities. And so, you know, we have a vested interest to work together, partner with our other agencies and making sure that we are doing everything that we can and dedicating the resources that are needed to bring these individuals to justice. So was this, was this fentanyl being manufactured here? Had it been brought in? Like, what can you tell us about the source? Yeah, so Simi, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, there's really three sources. Uh, it, it is manufactured locally. Uh, it, it is, certainly is in clandestine labs and whatnot. Uh, there's uh, supply chains that come in from Mexico, uh, and that's kind of well reported through the drug, drug cartels in, in Mexico, and that it does impact right here in, in BC in what the supply chain looks like. And then, and then there's, um, you know, there, there's other options as well where it's coming in from China and other countries as well. Uh, part of the investigation will try to determine where the supply chain uh, is and, and where, in fact, this product was coming from. Does it ever surprise you kind of where this stuff turns up, Chief Maddock? You know, like it could be any neighborhood, any home. Yeah, it, it is. And, and that is the challenge is that, uh, you know, th- there are safety risks for our communities when we have organized groups 
uh, operating, uh, you know, using our our streets, our communities at anywhere at any time. But but I think what gives confidence to British Columbians should be that police agencies are united in, in our fight to make sure that anybody uh, who is importing, producing, distributing illicit drugs into our communities and onto our streets, that police agencies across this province are going to work uh, in a united manner to aggressively target these individuals. All right. Will there be charges coming? Yes, uh, so there are going to be charges coming. So there were three individuals uh, that will be facing charges. Uh, One of the individuals uh, was actually on parole. And so his parole has been revoked, and he is uh, he's back in jail right now. Uh, the three individuals that are facing charges uh, will be, there's one uh, gentleman from Vancouver, one from Surrey, one from Calgary. And as the investigation unfolds, uh, charges will be laid and forthcoming. All right. Well, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thanks for having me on, Simi. Appreciate your time. That is Delmanic, the Victoria Police Chief. Uh, they've been talking about this huge uh, investigation that has just come to an end. It started back in June. But what they recovered in terms of the value of the drugs and the firearms and even the cash that they found, $30 million. And this was from about three or four different locations in the Victoria area. That is huge. And as you heard him say, it is the largest amount that they have uncovered in an investigation like that in Victoria's history. And you wonder, though, like, how long is it going to take for somebody to fill that gap? It must be so hard to be, you know, doing those types of investigations to know that today we got this, but tomorrow somebody's going to be scrambling to kind of fill that, that supply out there. And how do you catch those people then?